And it just goes to show that there's a lot of path to get through this world, to get through this life of ours. There's no right or wrong way. There's your way, period. You should pursue your way and, and do what you need to do to make yourself happy and to have the experiences that you want. You know, I do have some some memories um, early on where my parents were fighting over credit cards. You know, I distinctly remember my dad cutting cutting one up over a garbage can. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. What's going on, everybody? This is Clark with the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast here with my co-host, Jace, episode number 203. Jace, what's going on? How are you? Doing great, man. How you doing? Doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. We were talking this week about, and we we in an interview we did, we talked about inheritances. And I mean, we've had the conversation generational wealth, leaving an inheritance, passing kids under your money. However, you want to talk about it, we've had the conversation a few times. But if you had to sum it up from our millionaires' perspective and all the times that we've talked about it, what are most of our millionaires doing? Yeah, so really, it's interesting. Millionaires are, are really all over the board. There's all sorts of different philosophies around this subject. And I think it's going to get even more coverage in the media. And I think it'll be more and more of a discussion, especially as, you know, we're staring into, into one of the largest wealth transfers that the, that the world's ever seen from the baby boomer generation down to their children. And, it, it, you know, it, it's something that I think was going to come up a lot, but we've seen some millionaires say, look, I'm not giving my kids anything. We've seen some millionaires say, hey, look, you're going to be involved in family planning and charitable giving and, and you know, you're going to be on a, a committee to, to decide that. We've seen some that kind of take a middle of the road approach where, hey, they may pay for college, but they're not going to pay for grad school. They're not going to pay for a first home, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's, it's really been all over the board that we've seen. Yeah, I agreed with you. And, and it's come up in the news recently several times. So I just kind of looked up a few articles before we started chatting here. So Daniel Craig, right, actor from James Bond, I guess, and Knives Out magazine. So he, or Knives Out movie, he says, isn't there an old adage that if you die a rich person, you failed? I think Andrew Carnegie gave away what in today's money would be about 11 billion. My philosophy is to get rid of it or give it away before you go. Then you've got Kevin O'Leary, Shark Tank, an investor. He writes, no free lunch. It's just the wrong thing to do. You curse a child when you de-risk their lives. That doesn't mean you can't help them. Uh, Then he talks about his mom. She hated entitlement. She thought if you made it so that kids didn't have to work, they wouldn't. And I think she's right. Many people today know examples of rich, spoiled children who don't care about pursuing a career and have no reason to do so because their life has been entirely de-risked. And then what's often the most talked about is Warren Buffett's quote, And he says in the shareholder letter, after much observation of super wealthy families, here's my recommendation. Leave the children enough so that they can do anything, but not enough that they can do nothing. So it's interesting, some of these bigger names. And then obviously there's the whole group with Bill Gates and others who have joined to pledge to give away most of their money. But pretty interesting. I mean, you're still probably getting a good chunk if you're getting enough money that you can do anything, right? Yeah, yeah, I think (laughs) that. I think the number they've thrown out is like 10 million. 
I don't know. I don't know if I verified that or not, but I've just heard that a few different times. But begs the question, Clark, what are you going to do? Or have you even thought through that yet without kids? Oh, I haven't thought through about it much. I don't think I'll leave. Yeah, I don't think I'll leave a lot to them. I mean, but I don't know. I mean, you start thinking of alternatives. You're like, okay, I give it away or I donate it. I mean, you start thinking about where you want to donate it and the charities and what you really care about. I mean, that's probably a tough thing to do, especially for people like these guys that we just talked about who have so much money. Probably easier said than done. No, I know. I totally agree with you there. Probably, it probably is. And I've, I've thought through this multiple times and we'll see if that re- approach revolves at all a little bit over the, over my lifetime. But who knows, right? I'm still pretty young. I definitely yeah, don't want to go to the government. Flows. I think with a lot of, yeah. Oh yeah. Agreed. I think with a lot of things, it ebbs and flows. I mean, what you're going to do or who you can help or the causes you care about. I mean, those, I think those are different as you move on through life, different things matter. You prioritize different things. So I think it can be a work in progress. Yeah. The other question, not just with inheritance upon death, but how much do you help children, you know, along the way on their journey, right? Like how much you pay, do you pay for school? Do you help them start a business? Do you help them buy a first house? Do you help them set up a Roth or do you not? I mean, those are all sorts of questions that are, you know, much more, much sooner in in the journey, if you have the means to do so, do you do those things or do you not? Yeah, how much? And and our millionaires are all over the board on that. Some pay for college, some don't. Some pay half, some don't. Some te- you know encourage their kids to get a job in school, some don't. So yeah, that's all over the board. We've seen no similarity there on that concept, right? Yeah, and same thing with like first car purchase too, right? Some are like, oh yeah, I'll buy one outright, but it's $5,000 car. Some say, hey, I'll pay half. Some say, I'll provide a car for you while you're here in my house. But when you go off on your own, it's up to you. So yeah, all over the board. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. So anyway, just interesting concept, something that we were thinking about this week. Last week, just as a quick summary, we had Henry, his net worth is over 2 million. We put two, but it's over just a little heads up there. Uh, He's been an entrepreneur most of his life, invests in business and public equities, and has a little bit different approach than most of the millionaires we've had on the show. This week, we have a really unique episode, our first father and son interview. So the father is a millionaire. The son's on his way to a millionaire. Net worths are 1.4 and around 300,000. So we had both of them on and kind of talk about their approaches with money, what they do, how they work together, how they talk about finance, just totally different, interesting perspectives. Um, Also talk about teaching kids about money and passing along lessons to the next generation. So fun interview this week with Stu and Jimmy. First, I want to start with Stu, the father. Do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah, I grew up in uh, northern Utah, uh, worked my my way through college, uh, working full-time and going to school part-time. I've got a good background in materials engineering and uh, always been a little interested in the financial aspect of things and uh, real estate and stuff like that just kind of done the typical family married family kid career thing uh i did get divorced after about 20 years of marriage and uh, a few years a couple years after divorce my kids lost their mom and uh, i ended up raising ended up being a single father of 16 year old boy and a 13 year old daughter to finish raising by myself they're both out of the house, college graduates, uh, good careers, goal-oriented, happy, well-rounded kids, from what I can see. And now I'm just uh, working away until I decide to retire, if I decide to retire. 
Awesome. And what is your net worth today? Uh, my net worth is probably about a uh, million, three million, four, somewhere in there. Real estate values are a little subjective. You don't know until you sell and, and stuff. So that's just an estimate somewhere, somewhere in the ballpark, a million and a third. Okay. And how is that broken up? I have about 13 or 14% in a Roth IRA, about 27% in, in other retirement accounts. Uh, and then about 55% in real estate holdings, and then about 5% in a bunch of little stuff, personal loans, annuities, pensions, cash, precious metals, crypto, toys, bank accounts. Awesome. And, and the money that you have in vested in the market, is that in bonds, stocks? What's the breakup roughly there? Uh, primarily in stocks. Uh, I'm a fair, fairly aggressive investor. I have typically managed my own uh, retirement account, but uh, it got to a point where it got it, it's worth over it's worth over a half a million now between the Roth and the 401k and the 403bs and the IRAs uh, and the steps there's pre-tax and, and Roth, and it just got I, I found that I just wasn't redistributing it, uh, watching making sure that I wasn't tech heavy or tech light or, or whatnot. Uh, and, and so here a couple of years ago, I got a little lazy and hired a, a company to actively manage it for me. So I'm paying fees to do that. Uh, if I, if I retire, I may pull out of that and do it myself again. But, uh, until then, I just assume somebody else that watches it more regularly than I was taking, take care of it. Yeah. So, you know, you've shared quite a bit of your story and I want to I want to make this point. You've really built that up later in life and fairly quickly, is that correct? Uh yeah, actually. Um, you know, I always I always was was working toward having a comfortable retirement and having a comfortable life uh and and being not living day to day, uh which I did for most of my marriage and and uh, it was really a struggle in my marriage because my my ex-wife had uh, very different goals, I guess, is what you would call them, very different uh, attitude toward money and spending than I did. She, she I like to save, she liked to spend. So uh, most of most of my, my 19, 20-year marriage was living paycheck to paycheck and, and taking care of uh, like short-term debt that, that uh, we got involved with. It wasn't until um, the divorce when I was in my early, early 40s that I was able to really do some things that met my goals. Wow, that's pretty remarkable. So just for our listeners, I want to I make a point here. One, it's never too late to start, right? And two, even if you do start late, you still have a long enough runway to, to get to some, you know, where you've gotten a substantial net worth, Correct. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you just have to be diligent and take control of your finances and uh, basically save with a purpose. It it helps to, it definitely helps to have a partner that has the same goals as you. It definitely helps to work to improve your situation. And when I mean that, uh, work to get an education to to increase your earnings and your earning potential. Um, I mean, I, I worked full time from the time I was 19 until the 
until now with the with the small little four month pickup in in 2012 2013 I've worked full time uh but it working full time it took me 10 12 years to get my bachelor's degree going to night school and it was not fun especially after the kids came once the kids came I wanted to be anywhere but school I wanted to be with the kids and not at school and and school was very difficult once the kids were were around but it it took me I think 12 12 years after I graduated from high school to get my bachelor's degree Oh, we'll get in. We'll get into the kids too, because I mean, you mentioned Jimmy, and he's accomplished, and he's on with us here. So we'll get in into that shortly. Um, I, I just want to follow up a little bit on your story, and and talk back about where you learned to work. Right, you shared with us before the show that it was really on your grandparents' ranch. Right, that's how you learned to work. So, I, I guess my question is, talk about how that helped shape you. And how that experience working early on, and then we'll come back to Jimmy as well, how that helped shape how you raised your kids and teaching them the importance and the value of work. Yeah, both my grandparents had ranches in the in the upper Bear River Valley near Evanston, Wyoming. And I spent a lot more time at my 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 paternal grandparents' ranch, but I did spend time on both ranches. But uh, uh from the time from the time I uh basically sixth grade through the, even after high school, I spent all my summers, uh, and, and even, even like winter break, uh, Christmas break up on the ranch and bucked a lot of hay, fixed a lot of fence, chased a lot of cattle. And there was just always something to do on the ranch. And it's usually <laughs> hard work out in the mosquitoes and the weather and, and sat on tractors hanging for days and days and sat on horses. Pushing cattle uh, up to the up to the range for days, and it's just just a lot of hard work. And and I, it's literally just just watching my grandparents and my uncle and my dad uh, on the ranch, and and all the hard work that they did was just the example. I mean, everybody worked hard there. It was just expected. It wasn't. It wasn't that. It, I mean, it it wasn't that you were told to do the work it was just that everybody was working hard even grandma grandma had, had retired from school te- from being a school teacher she was in her 60s at the time i was up there uh, after she retired from school teaching she there was 10 acres of canvas dam ditch irrigating pasture uh right behind the the farmhouse and we'd be out working and grandma would go change the canvas dams in those ditches and if anybody knows how much work that is <laughs> uh, for a 60 year old woman or 60 uh, post you know 60 year old woman to go do it was hard for me to go do and she was out there every day she was responsible for well it, I mean we'd do it if we if we were around the the house but we, when we were when we were not when we were out chasing cows or in the field grandma would be out there pulling canvas dams and resetting them it was, I mean, it's just how it is up there. It's just everybody had a lot of work to do and everybody, right. nobody sat around. Yeah. Yeah. And it had an effect on you. And, and I just want to share normally before we interview somebody, we send a generic list of questions just to get interviewees prepped a little bit and what we're going to ask and some of the direction we go. And then, of course, on the show, we discuss more intimately or more in a direction of the person's story and some of the things that stand out or may be unique. And so when we sent these interviews over, you know, props to you, Stu, you, you said that 
you, you said, although your questions are great, I do not think they catch the life that I have had. And so I, I totally respect that because I think you're both your upbringing, right, which we've talked about working on the ranch, your marriage and, and raising the kids and then turning it around from a young age, as, as Jace mentioned, is really amazing. You know, as I, as I read through and think about your story, it's an amazing success story and it's, it's touching for me to read and, and to think about the success you've had and obviously with two great kids now and financially as well. So I, I just want to ask as much as you're comfortable sharing here about your, your dad, right? I think he had a big influence on you and you watched him build up a business. And then what happened as much as you're comfortable sharing here, what happened with that business as you watched him and maybe some of the lessons learned from that? Yeah, my dad uh, was a mechanic, is, is a mechanical engineer. He, he went to work for uh, HVAC, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning company right out of college. And uh, when I was, when I was growing up, he, he had worked himself up to vice president of that company. He kind of, once he got to that position, he kind of had some bad experiences with the owner and ended up leaving that company. And, and he was, from, from what I heard and what I saw and what I learned from some of his colleagues, you know, he was very instrumental in the success of that business. Um, and then he, he went to work for another company that was actually a couple other companies that had, but, but the last one he went to work for, it was, really really struggling and the owner made him the shop manager the basically the business manager shop manager and uh basically said i'm going to retire in a few years i'm going to i want to sell this to you well his dad turned the business around and it became more and more successful and and he had to work less and less and he got more and more money he got younger and younger and that date kept getting further and further out and just got tired of making money for other people when he decided to go out on in the business for himself. And there's a lot of capital investment with that kind of business, trucks and ladders and tools and, and um, equipment to build the, the sheet metal ductwork and, and, and whatnot, uh, and facilities and buildings and employees. And, and, and he, he, he was building it. It was coming along. He had a bunch of successful contracts. He was making some money. And then uh, sometime in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, within a series of just less than a year, just a matter of uh, six or eight months, he had three contractors that he had completed the work for and that they had been paid for his work to go bankrupt and left him and didn't pay him. He, he did not get paid for the work that he had already performed because of the bankruptcy that they, they'd filed. And uh, it, it really, really put him in a cash flow bind. He had a chance to, to go and file bankruptcy and get out from underneath it. But he, he just had this, this uh, attitude that he couldn't do to his suppliers and his colleagues that he'd been working with for years what the people that had gone bankrupt and left him high and dry had done to him. And so he fought and fought and fought and he ended up in arrears with the union dues, um, losing all of his union employees. He ended up in arrears with the IRS on, on some of the taxes that he, he owed them. And uh, there's no recovery from when you get in arrears on, on payroll taxes. Uh, you just don't recover. They, they, add fees and interest on top of it that you just can't keep up. I mean, his initial 
debt of a few thousand dollars ended up with him owing the IRS hundreds of thousand dollars of dollars. And, you know, he was pretty successful. He owned a ranch with his brother. He had a house, his business, he had some rental property, uh, and he ended up losing it all, uh, everything. He kept the business going, but he ended up losing everything. I, I saw some things that, that will shock you about how much power. I mean, he was, he was making an effort to, to pay his bills and to make the debt right and, and how much power and control the government has when they want to make, when one person make an example of it. Yeah. So did you, how old were you when all this was going on? Is this stuff that you learned, not stuff, is this information that you learned later down the road or is this something that you knew at a younger age? Or is this something you were aware of? I was a late teenager into my, I mean, he, he, he was, he was fighting them through probably junior high, my junior high through high school, all the way through high school. And then, I mean, this battle went on for, for, for the rest of his life, basically. He just recently, there's some statute of limitations from the eighties. So a 30 year statute of limitations. And he just recently in the last, in the last five or six years realized that they can no longer seize your bank account. And, uh, he can have a bank account now. So, um, yeah. it, it, it ruined him financially. And he's still, he's, he's, he's 80 years old and living on $1,200 a month social security. Um, mm. After being a successful small business owner, right? Yep. Yep. Wow. Sorry so, to hear. so it, it affected me. Like, I mean, I, I know you get a lot of people on your podcast. I've listened to enough of them to know that, that there's a lot of small business owners that make a lot of money. In fact, that's probably one of the, and, and, and from what I've seen is one of the most common ways to, to get in a position where I feel I am right now is by being a small business owner, but it does not come without a lot of hard work and a lot of risk. Some people make it and some people don't. And it made me, <laughs> it made me kind of very corporate and made me appreciate my get up, go to work for somebody else, do what I can to make my life better, save as much as I can and come home and do that and take care of my family. Uh, and, and to have the stability involved with a long, with a long-term career. Uh, you know, I know there's a lot of people, there's a lot of risk takers and in some ways I am a risk taker, but when it came to that and, and, and there's some things that really don't, aren't fun with that. I mean, when you get into corporate politics, I've been stuck in corporate politics. It just right, right. becomes toxic. It, it just affects your life in a very yeah. way all the way across. And, and it's not hard for a job to become toxic, but right. I'm very lucky in the fact I've had a, a very interesting career. I mean, I've worked on some very interesting projects. Uh, most of my, most of my career has been working with nuclear industry or nuclear industry materials and materials development. Uh, and, and I've, I've really enjoyed the work that I've done in the career that I've had. Good. Well, thanks for sharing. I mean, I respect your, your opinion and your candor and, and, and thank you. I think it's important to paint both sides of the picture, right? I think everybody has a different experience and oftentimes, and, and you see a lot, even with this 10 year bull market we're in, right? Everybody says, Oh, it's always going to go up or real estate. It's always just, you know, a rental's easy. And I think there's people on the other side of everything 
that don't have that experience necessarily. So I appreciate you telling both sides of the story. So I, I asked you where you were, how old you were when your dad was going through this experience. So let's bring in Jimmy now. So Stu's the dad. Jimmy's the son here on the interview today. And Jimmy, I'm I'm curious, we'll ask about you and your allocation right after this, but did you know growing up about your parents' situation or or tell us a little about how you grew up, your, how your dad taught you to work hard, what he taught you about money, and then we'll get into a little bit more details about you from there. Okay. Um, so a uh, quick overview of my story. Uh, first off, I'll start with uh, my net worth is it kind of depends on how you value because we, uh, my wife is a small business owner. And um, so, the you know, with COVID, that kind of potentially has changed um, the multiples and how you value the business equity. But if you don't count the business, it's about 260K. And if you do count it, it could be somewhere between 300 or 350. So anyway, I'm in my late 20s. And, you know, I do have some some memories early on where my parents were fighting over credit cards. You know, I distinctly remember my dad cutting cutting one up over a garbage can. And, uh, you know, at the same time, I had I had so many Legos. I had all the toys I ever wanted. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, you know, more than I wanted. I, uh, I, I somewhat from a, from my childhood even have an aversion to materialism to some degree. Anyway, I, uh, I worked through high school part time. Um, I began investing in 2009. Uh, my dad pushed me to, to max out a Roth IRA with my part time income. But, uh, you know, my mom passed away when I was 16. And when I turned 18, I did get some life insurance, and it was about 50k. And obviously, that's a huge head start over my peers. But at the same time, um, I don't necessarily consider myself lucky. I don't think um, losing a parent is a trade, you know, a very good trade for 50k. Um, Although in some instances, you know, my mom made some things harder. It is what it is. But um, most kids, I think, would quickly burn through that. But I was able to maintain it. And I, uh, I did do a two-year service mission, um, that I paid half of my dad paid half. When I went to school, I decided to go into it. And in the summer months, I actually got a door-to-door sales job and my dad thought I was crazy, but it paid extremely well. I was, you know, making over $50 an hour and about 10,000 a month. And I paid for my degree and five months of work. And over the course of two summers, I did six weeks one summer and four months the next summer and that paid for my college so yeah i did uh i, I graduated in 2015 with a degree in computer information technology started out doing tech support and i've since transitioned to become a data engineer and over the last five years i've job hopped to increase my pay 50 percent um, started out making about sixty thousand, and now i'm at ninety two thousand. and good for the whole you. time yeah thank you the whole time my wife and I've been married, which is basically the same month that I graduated. You know, we've tried really hard. We've we've generally saved about forty percent of our pay. So almost, uh, you know, we get a paycheck. If we get a paycheck on the fifteenth, we we use that to live off of, and we the one at the end of the month, we we pretty much just save it. And uh, anyway, that's kind of my story. Um, also, getting into real estate now, and hopefully, we'll have my first rental rented out in January. But we will see how that goes. 
Awesome, Jimmy. So let's get into your allocation. Just you mentioned getting a real estate uh, rental here pretty soon, but what is the the makeup of of the two sixty or three hundred? Call it with the, with the business or or a little over that with the business. What's the makeup of all that? Okay, so equity. I do count my home equity and the equity in my future rental property, and that's about eighty thousand. A lot of that is uh, sweat equity and a recent home purchase. Um, the home that we live in now, we plan to live in for a couple of years so that if we wanted to sell, we could avoid capital gains tax, but it also would make a pretty good rental. Investments in the stock market make up about 175000 I I have 1% of my net worth in crypto, and I have about 3% in crowdfunded real estate, which I'd like to grow at some point. And then I keep about 8 to 10% in cash. And do you plan to, to maintain that? allocation going forward for the foreseeable future? So I would like to increase my cash position. You know, my loan to value right now on my properties is uh, I only have 20% equity across both of my properties. Uh, I would like to own my rental outright. It's a small mortgage, so it wouldn't be that hard to do. And I'd like to get that loan to value closer to 50 or 40%. Um, so I, I would like to increase my you know, real estate allocation. I would like to increase my crowdfunded real estate as well. And also, I think I need to have bigger cash reserves um, as a landlord and with COVID and, and all that. Um, you know, currently have maybe six months of cash. But if, you know, if we had a vacancy, that would go much faster. So, I, I, you know, I think uh, having closer to a year would be good. I'd really like to get to 50000 in cash, but that's going to take a little while. Jimmy, I want to ask growing up and 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 the things that you experienced and and your dad we've heard a little bit of both stories what are some of the principles or lessons that you really took from your childhood or or even now that your dad has taught you you know i have distinct um memories of learning the rule of 72 which uh is basically how long it takes to double your money um in investments and there's a really easy way to remember it and it's basically the numbers eight and nine are um, interchangeable. So if you earn 9% interest on a $100 investment in eight years, it will double to 200 and vice versa. If you earn 8%, it'll double in about nine years. So that's a simplified, easy math of the rule of 72. And so I often think um, if I'm in my late 20s now, you know, every dollar I have, if if there's 30 or 40 years before I need that, if I can keep that invested, you double it, uh, $1 goes to 2 to 4 to 8 to 16 uh, Every dollar I have is $16 in the future. And so when I think about I'm going to buy a $10 you know, cheeseburger, no, it's actually, uh, you know, or just a meal out, it's actually $160. So I often think about that. that. That heavily impacted me. And so I often, you know, count the cost, the opportunity cost there. And Stuart... It- were there certain things that you wanted to instill in? Was it was teaching the rule of seventy two something that you really wanted to make sure that that Jimmy learned? Absolutely, uh, that's something that <laughs> that I specifically remember showing both of my kids uh, probably multiple times. Uh, the 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 other thing that I really really wanted to, I mean, that really really concerned me is. The, you mentioned that he, he got about $50,000 handed to him when he was 18 years old. Um, think about 
I think about what would have happened to me if somebody would have had handed me a comparable amount of money when I was 18. Or if you look at a lot of, I mean, almost anybody, you hand an 18-year-old kid uh, money, especially one that, that's, uh, you know, within a couple of years has been dealing with the death of a parent without good basic foundations of, of how to how to use money and how to work with money and how to basically an understanding of budgets and money and, and how to deal with it. I mean, it was a huge concern for me to make sure that at 18, when, when that, that money from his mom's life insurance got handed to him, that both him and his sister were well prepared for it and that, that, that it was going to be used in a responsible manner. And, it would be appreciated for what it is uh, as, as, as their mom's legacy, so to speak, and that uh, it wouldn't just get squandered and wasted. And, and I mean, <laughs> and, and like it was such a concern for me uh, after the death of their mother to prepare them to prepare. I mean, it went into a trust. I had I had no control over it. Mm-hmm. At eight, we're going to get it. I knew it. I think they knew it. Just the the just the the concern of how that can actually ruin somebody and it really can if they're if they're not somewhat stable and responsible and educated on and not just educated have a practical application of money and the value of money and how it works what it's used for and how you can how it can benefit you and what you know just just it's such a huge concern on mine mine when when I realized that both my kids would just be handed this lump sum when they turned 18. Yeah, totally. So Jimmy, do you, do you talk money and, and, you know, strategy with, with your father now? Uh, we do talk about money quite a bit. It used to be where I was always asking his advice and it's actually kind of flipped the other way around, <laughs> which is kind that, of funny. So does, he, does Stu, do you agree with that? He's like, yeah, right, man. It <laughs> I used to be the one that really paid attention to it, and now that I'm, I'm not going to say I'm on cruise control, but I'm I'm comfortable, and I have somebody managing my assets, and and uh, my real estate holdings are doing well. Uh, I don't. What what do you what do you call it, Jimmy? Where you chase the chase the pennies? I don't chase the pennies anymore, and he does. He he is into it. He's got a blog that he he's active on that he that he does. Uh, he, he knows the laws, he knows the rules. I go to him for advice now. Absolutely. So J- Jimmy, let me go back. Your dad said you got the 50,000 or you've talked about it, right? In, in life insurance after your mother passed away. And I know there was some work that went on behind that, right? Both from your dad and your perspective in the sense of budgeting that amount, helping you open a bank account, getting a debit card. What do you remember about that process and, and what what exactly did happen? Because I think it's so interesting, right? It, you don't hear about it often. And like you said earlier in the show, you wouldn't trade it, right? A loss of a parent for money, but it is what it is. It happened. You got the 50000 And so how did, you, how did you both work on that together? And what do you remember, Jimmy, about getting that set up and making sure you didn't spend it all or you spent it wisely? You know, I don't remember too much because... You know, my, when, a, when a parent passes away and I didn't even really realize this, but, um, I think, you know, you get some social security for the kids in many instances. And, and that was to help my dad, you know, pay for my school and activities and whatnot. 
And my dad used some of that money. He gave some of that money to me for, for gas and he didn't have to, but he did. But, you know, at the same time I was getting good grades. Um, I was staying out of trouble and I, I was also working part-time. So I had, you know, 300 bucks a week coming in, in high school that pretty much covered, you know, whatever dates I wanted to go on. And I honestly don't remember a whole lot other than I would often buy lots of random things at Walmart <laughs> and just, uh, I never really bought anything expensive. I've always been one to look for a deal. So, you know, I definitely enjoyed it a little bit, but it really, I didn't really feel like I had anything to spend it on. I, I drove an old beat up pickup truck and just tried to keep that thing running and, and rode around on dirt bikes and it was pretty simple. So, uh, but I do remember when I graduated high school being, kind of prodded and pushed to open a Roth. And, and I was kind of just resisting it. It took a few months. And now this was when I was graduating high school, it was 2009. So that was a good time to be investing. I wish I had listened, you know, the summer before I went to my first semester of college, I probably dragged my feet on it for about two months. And, and, uh, so I didn't quite get the bottom of the market, but I was, you know, I was pretty close back in 2009. It was a good time to start investing. Yeah. So let me, Stu, let me ask you about the life insurance because it's it's obviously something you hope you never have to use in a sense, but I know it played both a big part in you and Jimmy and your financial success or getting that ball rolling a little bit, right? Early on. What made you initially, I think there's a little backstory, right? To what made you initially get the life insurance and maybe what your, what would be your advice to somebody on when to get it and how much to get? So, the life insurance that, that Jimmy and his sister got was through his mother's employer, and it was a policy that she designated as the beneficiary to her, so to them. When when both of my kids were born in in the early 90s, I was working a job that had really good employee life insurance and really good dependent life insurance, and I had had enough interest in finances to to read and to know that anybody with dependent children should have a life insurance policy roughly equal to 10 times their income. And, and that's just a general policy, uh, general general rule, okay? And I had that through my employer and I had it for my, for my wife through the employer. Um, not, only, not only do working moms need life insurance, but stay at home mom needs life insurance. Because if you're if you're a single parent and you're relying on that other parent, if you're a parent if you're a parent and you're relying on that other parent for to help raise the kids, whether they're working or not, they're of substantial value to the marriage. So you need to be able to replace that if something happens. Uh and and the the, the general rule is Ten times their income. If they're not, if they're a working parent, mother or father, then then that also needs to be considered uh, of what their value to the household is. And so, I had the job. It had good dependent and employee life insurance. Um, in the late nineties, I switched to a job that offered decent employee uh, life insurance, but it didn't really. It was a minimum policy on. On dependents and, and my my wife. So in the late '90s, she pretty much lost the life insurance that I had because I switched this job. 
And I went shopping for a 20-year term life policy, roughly equal to 10 terms of policy. And I purchased that book, purchased that. And let's see, about eight years later, we ended up getting a divorce. And during the divorce, I discussed with her. So, so she's the, I'm the policyholder. She and the beneficiary and, and the policies on her. And I told her that I still need her. I mean, we discussed it in the divorce that we still need her, her value to raise the kids and that I would keep the policy and keep it current on her. And so I did that after the divorce. And when she died a couple of years later, I also got a life insurance policy payout to help raise the kids. It's basically, uh, and I just want to emphasize this to anybody that's living, that's listening, that has kids. It's good, solid, prudent financial planning to have life insurance on your, on a parent if you have dependent children. And it needs to cover what the loss of that parent would be to that. To raising me. And so I bought a 20 year term life policy on, on my wife when my kids were younger. And when she died, I got a payout on it as well. So she, so the kids got a payout on her employee, the employee life insurance. And then I got a payout on the policy, which I used to basically provide the kids a nice, stable environment to be able to deal with and, and recover and be successful. Uh, after their their loss, the loss of their mother. Yeah, thanks for sharing. I just I, I want to read a couple of words that you wrote to us before because I think it really hits home and, and reiterates the importance of this. You said making the sound financial decision in, decision to ensure the life of the mother of my children ten years earlier freed me of financial worries during the critical time we needed to deal with her loss as a family. It allowed me to provide a stable environment that allowed my children to not only deal with her death but also to thrive. My priority was on my kids and me for the first few years after her death. It was only afterwards that I could see what, that we were going to be okay, that I refocused on my career and my finances. The life insurance allowed me to do this. Absolutely. So, yeah. So, I mean, perfect. That's your word. So, so thanks for sharing. So, let's shift gears here a little bit. Um, Jimmy, I'm going to come back to you. So, you shared with us, you, you paid half of the two-year church service mission. I, I think you paid half of college growing up, right? What was the conversation with you and your dad and your your mom also but when growing up about what you had to pay for? And, and were you aware that you had to pay half? And did you have that in savings? Or what, I'm, I'm just curious on that dynamic because I think parents with kids, you see it in totally different ways, right? Some pay all the school, some pay none of school. If they want to do like a study abroad, that there's always like discussion on who pays for what and how much. So what was that dynamic like growing up and, and the communication with your dad and others? That's a, that's kind of a tough question. I, I don't remember a whole lot of that, but you know, I did have the money from when I was 18. So I knew I could have paid everything if I had to. And, and yes, when I was going to school, you know, basically as long as I was keeping in touch and, and doing a good job and, and working hard, then my dad paid my uh, housing in college and, and I took care of the tuition and, and most of the other expenses along with that. But, uh, yeah, as long as, uh, as, as far as the mission goes, uh, again, I, I think I, I mean, I could have paid it myself, but, uh, it was kind of the same deal where as long as I work hard and try my best, then he's willing to chip in as well. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. 
the, you know, just the journey that you two have been on and, and, you know, what, what you've experienced to get to where you are now. I want to shift gears just a little bit. We've spent a lot of time talking about the, the past and how experiences have shaped the two of y'all and, and your interactions together and the dynamic that's shifted from father teaching son to now son teaching father. Where, and, and Jimmy, I'll start with you or maybe Stu actually, cause you're, you're, you're kind of at a point where you, you know, say you're not watching the pennies as much anymore. Where do you go from here as it relates to, to finances and, and maybe instilling some additional lessons in, in, into your family or your family tree and, and things that you want for the, the generations that come after you? Let me back up and, and, and comment on the question you just asked, uh, Jimmy. With me helping with them, I wanted them to have a stake in what they were doing. And I, I basically worded it to him. I, I'm not sure if he, uh, he, if him or my daughter would know this or remember this, but, but basically I wanted them to have a stake in what they were doing. I knew that they they had money from their mom. I wanted their mom. So, so the way I thought is, is that they had a choice. That money was from their mom and they had a choice to use it how they wanted it wanted to, but if they were going to invest in their future, I was willing to match their investment. I was willing to to match the investment that they were willing to do in their future. And and that's how I looked at it. With their education, with his service mission, with my daughter's education. So to me, it's an investment in their future. And if they're willing to invest in their future, I'm willing to help them. So so Going back to, to the question you just asked me, where where do I go from here? Well, I enjoy my job. I, I'm very fortunate to have a job that I, I I really do enjoy, and and I make a decent salary doing it. And with COVID, I've I've kind of received the freedom to be able to do it from wherever I want. There's some limitations to that, but my short term future. Is, is to continue to basically minimize minimize my debt and reduce my cash flow need because the the properties that I that I have do have some cash flow need and and if, if there's one thing that will get you in trouble that I saw from my dad and some, from some other examples is and and my son has mentioned it as well is, is cash flow will get you in trouble faster than anything else. So, so when I get to a particular cash flow based on my, my rental income and my, uh, and my, uh, investment and just reducing my debt, then I'm going to cut back on work if I want, uh, if I choose to. So my, and, and maybe do some things. I, I, I've later in life, since I've been divorced, I've, I've really developed appreciation for travel. And so I want to do a lot more of that once this COVID is over. In fact, this this working from home thing is something that I could probably at some point integrate into my travel. And I think it would be fun to go go somewhere for a couple months and explore that and work from there and explore that and then come back, back to, to my home and then do that two or three times a year and explore certain areas of the world that that have uh I that I want to explore. There's so much out there that, that people haven't that just don't see if they don't travel. Travel is just a very important thing. Now uh if if I get to the point where 
I feel that I have more than enough. You know, I've, I've, I've talked about this with some of my siblings, but, uh, I think it would be fun or nice if I have excess to get to a point where I set up like a educational trust for, for my father's offspring, for my father's descendants. Um, uh, he, I have a, I have, because of his IRS troubles, uh, uh, he wanted to work. He was he was struggling to make rent on his shop, and I ended up buying a shop that I have just let him use for costs for a long time. And unfortunately, he's still around using it, and I haven't benefited one bit from from doing that, from buying that for him. He's I've only gotten my cost covered from that, and and I hope he uses it for a long, long time. But when it comes to a point where it's mine. It means that I've lost him, and I'd rather I'd rather have him than shot by a long way. But when it comes to a point where I've lost him, uh, if if I benefit from that shop at all, I think I think some of the benefit of that would be an educational trust for his descendants. So that's something that I've been thinking about. Jim, before we get into to your future, Stu, I just want to ask: Would you say that? that your daughter has taken up some of these lessons the same way that the Jimmy has? My daughter and my son are very, very, very different and very, very, very similar. It's really strange. My, my, my son has very, has always been very frugal and has, has, has maybe passed up some life experiences. But, and, and I've, I've, he knows that I've talked to him about this, that, you know, there's some things that are worth spending money on. And life experiences are way more important than financial successes. And if you can have some good life experiences and, 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 and with your, with the people that you love and explore this wonderful world and this beautiful, huge world that we, we really only just know our little corner of it. And, and to go out and explore some of these, these beautiful areas, just amazing. My daughter has that. When I started traveling, she started traveling with me and, and she, and, and my son didn't want it, but she did. She's been, she, she, at her young age in mid twenties, she's been to more places than I've been, been to. She's, she's done uh, a three week tour in Morocco, in Africa, uh, with, with a, at her educational program. She has a master's degree and she, where my son went to a, to a very affordable college, my daughter went to went the other way. She went and, and went to a, a fairly expensive private college, and she got a lot of grants and scholarships to go there. But it was substantially more expensive than the route than what my son did. But during her education, she did, like I said, three weeks in three to four weeks in Morocco, three to four weeks in Thailand on service service um, learning programs. Her her background is her degree is public health, so there's a lot of opportunity for service in, in across the world in, in that area. She's besides Thailand and Morocco with education, she's been to Vietnam, uh, Costa Rica, Hawaii, Alaska, Europe. Uh, I mean she's she and I'm probably missing some places. She's for a lot of the United States as well, but but she's got a different her her field does not pay the, the same as as my son's field, 
but she thoroughly enjoys her work in public health and she doesn't really care about the money as much as as my son does and uh, about the savings but she still saves and she still has you know 401k she still whatever but she 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 invested most of the inheritance that she got in her education where my son saved most of it actually and had it after his education but but uh, it just goes to show that there's a lot of path to get through this world to get through this life of ours there's no right or wrong way there's your way period you should pursue your way and and do what you need to do to make yourself happy and to have the experiences that you want totally so jimmy where do you go from here are you trying to target a net worth or passive income goal down the road uh that is a another good question i am not really enjoying corporate life you know it is is okay there's there's a lot of headaches that come with it um you know it does seem kind of like a glamorous job you could say you know it's it's heavily in demand and it does pay well but you know some of the projects and the deadlines and the unrealistic stuff you have to deal with is not very fun you know part of me wants to go back to sales or um business development or you know start my own business or something i do have intentions to acquire a couple more rentals and if you know if they were paid off they could cash flow my lifestyle and i could be what you call cash flow financial independence even if uh even if i don't have a large sum of money associated with that but yeah i'm not sure i mean i definitely intend to be a millionaire in the next you know, 5 to 10 years if not you know if not sooner um uh, my wife's business has quite a bit of growth potential or it could also provide our needs and allow me to go into some other interests i i do have more interests than i have time to explore in a lifetime i think um i have a lot of interest in in the trades and you know i don't really enjoy sitting around at a desk all day i like to be active and and uh yeah you know i would love to <laughs> this this may seem odd but i kind of have this dream of working part time at costco or home depot just getting some health benefits and <laughs> and uh then I can do my own thing, you know, yeah, yeah. 20 hours a week and work part-time 20 hours a week. But I'd love to, I do want to give back. I want to serve. I want to teach people what I've learned um, that maybe they're not learning. And, you know, part of it, part of me thinks about all these people in retail that have to work holidays and Black Friday and they never get the holidays off. And, you know, I guess I could be that person that works the holidays off because if I wanted to, I could walk away at any point. So that's kind of where I see myself going and, and just, uh, kind of doing my own thing one day and, you know, having some little part-time backstop. Um, freelancing is another thing I've thought about doing if I get to a certain point where, you know, I could still use my technical IT skills on the projects that interest me, but it's just, you know, kind of like a bonus where I don't necessarily need the money, but um, I can still not touch the principal and just cash flow my, my lifestyle and let my money grow. Yeah, well, I, you're obviously doing super well. So congrats on that. And, and I think you've chosen a good career path, right? That's helped you to grow your income and, and get here as fast as you can. Cause you're just in your late twenties here. So you have, you had, you shared with us about a hundred thousand dollar net worth at age 25 and about 250. You've hit over 250 now, right? Before the age of 30. So those are, those are some of the benchmarks. I just want to go back, Jimmy, because I think you have, you mentioned with the saving rate, 40 to 50% and being able to grow this so quickly and, and grow your income so quickly. How did all this start? Where did your interest in money 
in investing start and, and as much as you want to share and are comfortable with, where did it all begin? Well, it did begin when I was 18 and my dad pushed me to get a Roth. And mostly I remember buying um, the ticker SPY, uh, which was an S&P 500 index fund. But I was also encouraged to pick some individual stocks. And, you know, that way I, I, f- I guess you could have more interest. You know, an index on the outside is kind of boring, even though it's extremely effective for um, long-term purposes. And, you know, that's what Warren Buffett recommends to most investors is just the S&P 500 index fund. But, you know, I picked some 3D printing stocks because that seemed really interesting at the time. And, you know, some solar stocks and those didn't do very well in most cases. I think they'll do better in the future. But um, yeah, so that's kind of where it started. In, In college, I would read Yahoo Finance for about two hours a day. And eventually I stumbled upon Mr. Money Mustache and and choose FI, and I got really into some of these financial independence podcasts and tax optimization, real estate, and you know, just got more and more interested in everything with investing or how to make money. Yeah. So as you look back on the short journey you've had now, and, and all the things you've learned, what are some? Are there a couple mistakes that you could point to and, and say, "Hey, I wish I would have done that or handled that a little bit differently"? Yeah, there's a few. Um, some of the mistakes that I've I've made is I, I bought probably too big of a house too early on. Um, I bought a $300,000 five bedroom, uh, three bathroom house. And, you know, we, we had, um, we didn't even have kids at the time. So I don't know why we needed all those bedrooms, bedrooms, but I, at the same time now it was in, it's in such a desirable location. Uh, you know, we only owned it for two years. It went up 50,000 in, in price. And, now even four years removed it's it's over four hundred thousand so the thing is is I relocated for a, a job out of that state and I kind of had the option to keep that house as a rental and I had some interest in that but it wouldn't have cash flowed I still wish I'd have kept it because I would have probably used it to get a HELOC and that would have been able to you know accelerate my foray into real estate but also when I owned that house for two years, uh, just to give an idea, it was 2016 to 2018. I paid down the mortgage aggressively. In about two years, we paid down about 30,000. And both of those years, the stock market went up about 15 to 20%. And so, you know, I was earning, uh, whatever my mortgage rate was compared to, I wish I had been maxing my 401k. So, you know, I did my Roths, but I just did my 401k to the match, but I really wish I had put more money into the stock market back then. So that was, those were some of my, my big mistakes. I wish I'd held on to that house. say big mistakes, but you're young, man. You got your whole life, right? Yeah. In, in hindsight, I mean, I still have plenty of time. They're, they're not anything that's really held me back, but I, I do think if I'd have held that house, I probably would have another hundred thousand to my name, but that's how it goes. No, it's interesting. And, and Jace, we, I mean, Jace, we did an interview with Jace and we're all about the same age. So you, yep. I mean, same thing, same, same concept. You had some mistakes as well. Stu, let me jump over to you. I want to talk about your real estate portfolio because you have quite the portfolio here and we haven't hit on it. So you have just in summary and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, you have a commercial building, uh, a, a home, a single family home, two condos, and then a couple lots, right? And mm-hmm. Some of these numbers are pretty amazing. You, on these two condos, you say you bought them for about sixty-six and seventy-five thousand each in two, about two, in two thousand eleven, and they're close to three hundred now. 
So you that's almost like four X your money, right? On some of these. Yeah, yeah. I've been very fortunate. The 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 thing is 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 like I said, once we started so I got the life insurance money and I I used it pretty much to to buy a house that was out of the neighborhood from where their mom was and and that was big enough to to raise two kids because the house I have is definitely not. Uh, it, it had just one bathroom and a toilet in the entry in, from the garage. And, uh, the kids would, I'd get phone calls <laughs> at work about fights over the bathroom every morning. So, uh, we ended up buying a house, the house is on, on there with, with the life insurance money. That's what I did with it entirely. I put it on the house. And so, uh, it, it did open up and then I paid off some of the debt that I got stuck with in the divorce and I paid off my car payments and stuff. So I got rid of all of my short-term debt with it. Then I went out and got a HELOC on it. And the HELOC, to me, the HELOC was the key to the key. So now I have money available to buy, uh, buy something. And, uh, in 2008, 2009, real estate market crash. And I, went actively looking for real estate. And uh, I'm, I, I grew up in northern Utah. I'm a skier. And I looked at some properties around where I was living. But uh, And I also got looking at, at condos closer to the ski area where I like to ski up at uh, Grand Target. And uh, there was a, a condominium development uh, where, well, that... It, it's a it's close to Jackson Hole, and that's a that's that's a you know national destinational ski area, and uh, gateway into Yellowstone Park and Grand Teton National Park. And uh, I found a couple. Of, I found a I found a condo up there for seventy five thousand dollars, and so I used my home equity line of credit. I bought it, and uh, then took a HELOC on it to pay for it. So basically my out-of-pocket investment for it was like $15,000. And then I took, took the HELOC on it and uh, and then paid my house back, paid my home mortgage HELOC down. Anyway. Uh, Interesting. Interesting. Uh, just to give me seed money, you know, just to, just to yeah. give me money. Um, the markets crashed and, and Teton County, Wyoming and Teton County, Idaho got hit because that's where people a lot of people have second homes like you're going to do what you keep your first home but you're not going to fight that hard for your second home you're going to if you need to lose something that's what you're going to lose and and the real estate values just tank in in this this area so but i was i was like well this is an investment but i like to ski (laughs) so so it was it was and my payment was about what a car payment was on. So I could have gone and bought a car that's going to depreciate or I buy a condo that has some up. Yeah. Uh, a, a few months later, a few months later, the one right next to it came up for sale for even less. And I had a good realtor that really liked to negotiate. She, she loved to negotiate. So I stick her on it. And I, I picked up another one for 66,000 uh, later in the year. In 2011, and uh, I, 
I've, I've had people tell me I was crazy for doing it. It was stupid. The real estate market sucks. Don't get into real estate. Everybody's losing their money. And I'm like, no, this is the time to buy. This is the time to buy. And if I can afford it for, for three, four hundred dollars a month, I have an asset. And to tell you the truth, I couldn't even run them out for the first year or two. Like I, they, and I didn't have the money to really even furnish them. I mean, I, they were bare bones furnished and anyway, but, uh, as we know, here it is nine years later. Uh, yeah, they've come back, especially in the last two or three years with a vengeance. And, uh, I'm very fortunate to have been in a position and to have taken the chance and to have done that because they've been one of the biggest reasons in growing my net worth is I mean that's substantial two of them and there was a third one that sold for 57000 and I'm like if I'd have known about it I'd have tried to go after it as well <laughs> you would have owned the whole complex huh? and I'm mad about it so <laughs> so your but, uh, the, the numbers on your real estate portfolio you have about you, you mentioned about 1.25 million in value uh, about 400,000 in debt so you're net about 800 how much in cash flow do you collect monthly from, I guess, three, those three rentals or four rentals, right? Well, it, it's been kind of dynamic. I was renting out uh, my main home for about five years and I was getting about $1,500 a month for that. And then I rented out one of the condos for the last seven years, seven years. And I, I, I when, when that renter left in October, uh, I was getting about $1,000. And, and, it's worth about fifteen hundred a month in rent, but I'll tell you what: if you get a good renter in that pays that that pays on time and that uh, takes care of your place, it's worth it to undervalue the rent. Uh, I would tell you that up front. Uh, a bad renter will cost you money. Uh, so with with COVID, I my my renters have moved out of my house. I'm currently not renting anything. And this is why you need cash flow. This is why you cannot get in a cash crunch is because you will have times when you have to pay for everything and you don't have income coming in. So currently, right now, what I am doing is I'm in the process of moving back to, to my my main house because to tell you the truth, I've never hit a four-bedroom, three-bath house and Anybody that wants to rent it has a lot of kids and it gets trashed. And every, I had a renter in there for two years and they got trashed. And then I got had another renter in there for three years and they got trashed. So I'm just moving back to it right now. Since I, mm-hmm. since I can from home, I'm moving back to it. And then I'm converting both of my condos into short term rentals because I think there's more income potential uh, in short term rentals as opposed to Jackson Hole. Yeah. Uh, currently I'm, no income, but it has the potential. All three properties have the potential to rent out for uh, fifteen hundred to two thousand a month. Awesome, awesome, good for you. All right, well, you guys have been gracious with your time, so let me just ask a couple more here, and then we'll wrap up. Thanks for thanks for hanging with us. So, let me just ask. We'll, we'll save uh, general advice for a thirty-year-old at the end, but let me ask you some rapid-fire questions here um but first i'm just curious on both of your risk tolerances so maybe where are you at 10 being willing to take the most risk and one being the most conservative 
Where are you both at right now, Jimmy? Let's start with you. Where are you both at right now, and how has that evolved? For me, I would I would say I'm at a seven or an eight on the risk scale right now. It's it's gone down. You know, I've got young kids. I've got two mortgages. I need to rent out one condo, and I'm eating I'm eating that condo. I, I mean, I'm I'm paying that two mortgages right now. Um, while I did a renovation on this primary home, so it's gone down. I I definitely want to have a larger cash position. Um, what, what I hear it called is the barbell, where you want to have a heavy cash position so that you can be aggressive with all the rest of your money. So, you know, I'm pretty uh, aggressive. One of one of the funds that highlights that is the ARKK fund. It's an ETF that focuses on innovative companies, disruptors, huge upside potential, but also huge probably going out of business potential. But that thing is. Uh, done really well over the last four years for me. Awesome. Stu, what about you? Risk tolerance, has it changed over the years? Maybe a little just recently, but not a lot. Uh, I've always been high risk with my investments. Uh, I'm not afraid of market fluctuations. Uh, I, I saw I saw them in 87. I saw them in, I can't even remember what years they were, but I've seen enough of them that know that most market fluctuations in my lifetime, recover very quickly. Now, if you look historically in my parents' lifetime, there was a 20-year bear market. Like, but but something changed somewhere in the 80s and 90s, and we've had bull market runs for a long time. And I get a little concerned every once in a while. But to tell you the truth, the because I've been so successful, I have enough that I don't think I need to be afraid to be aggressive as I get closer to retirement. Plus I have the, the comfort, the fallback on of my career, you know, so, so that gives me some insurance. So uh, I would say that I've always been like an eight or a nine and now I'm maybe a seven or an eight. Okay. So you guys are both still pretty up there, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's finish here with some rapid fire questions and then last words of advice. So Stu, let's start with you. And then Jimmy, you just answer right after. Um, what's the most expensive car? How much that you've purchased? About five years ago, I bought a used infinity all wheel drive, uh, sedan for about $24,000, Okay. Jimmy. Um, I bought a certified used Toyota Corolla for 14,000 cash. Okay, what about most expensive pair of shoes, Stu? Probably uh, uh, under $100. Probably well under $100, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jimmy? Um, I've got several dress shoes and hiking boots that are high-end, $200, but my everyday Nikes, I'll always buy them on a, on a buy one, get one free or half off, and they're so it's like 70 but with the BOGO, it's I get two, and so the mm-hmm. average is to be about 50. Okay, well, what about the most expensive meal that you guys have, have personally paid for, Stu? We'll start with you. Uh, <laughs> I was at a Super Bowl party here a few years ago and had known that I'd won a couple of squares on the football pool there and had about a grand coming to me <laughs> from, from winning squares. From, Super Bowl squares? Yeah. And oh, I, nice. I ended up blowing probably about four or five hundred dollars that night paying for for <laughs> rent. Everybody's 
like not everybody in the in the establishment, but but definitely I paid for everybody at my table, all the meals, everything. It was probably a little over four hundred, maybe almost five hundred dollars. Okay, Jimmy, and it was fun for me. Probably fifty dollars. Um, I always use coupons, and usually I'll make it up to full price anyway with a tip. Right. And then last last rapid fire question here: How much do you both spend a year? annually do you know what your household spending is i do not keep track of my spending anymore uh i do i'm i'm single i like to go out with my friends i like to have a a good time socially this year has been kind of rough on me but i probably and and my son would just and my dad too would just roll his eyes at, at this but in the last several years it's not on unusual for me to, to spend a thousand dollars in restaurants a month okay jimmy um annually uh somewhere between 35 and forty thousand a year is what i spend okay so let me just last question here let's talk about advice to a 30 year old and i know we've gotten into a lot of it already but i think you've both shared some some good information on the notes that you shared beforehand and what we've discussed so Jimmy, let's start with you this time. What would be your advice to somebody who's just getting started? Maybe they're out of college, 25 or 22 or even 30 years old. What would be your final words of advice to them? Okay, I've got a few things um, I want to touch on briefly. Um, number one is if you get married, make sure you stay married. I do, you know, th- we've talked about it with my dad. Divorce is expensive. So work on your marriage and be transparent, be accountable to each other. Make sure you know kind of what you're getting into. The other thing would be to learn about hedonic adaptation, learn how it affects you and how it relates to finance uh, as far as upgrading your lifestyle or downgrading your lifestyle. If you're coming out of college, keep living that way. You don't have to buy everything new. There's tons of use, perfectly good used stuff people are getting rid of all the time. So, yeah, I uh, live as cheaply as I can. I'm always looking for a deal, but um, I do splurge on on value when I see it. So, uh, th- those are my main things. Last thing I'll say is get term life insurance, you know, for 500 bucks a year. If, if I were to die, my wife would be essentially a millionaire and vice versa. And we wouldn't have to worry. You know, I just think it'd be horrible, horrible to be in that situation where you've lost uh, a spouse. And if they're taking care of your kids or working and you depend on that income, you know, what are you going to do? You're you're basically sentencing yourself to a lifetime of hardship. And so that's one of my main things. Get a will, get a healthcare proxy and a power of attorney as well. So I know that was kind of a lot, but I'll leave it at no, that. No, no, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. Stu, last word to you. Be diligent and take care of the important things. Like, like my son mentioned, life insurance, uh, long-term investing, long-term savings, investments in yourself and your education. But once those are on, you can set those up to be kind of on cruise control. And once they're taken taken care of, don't be afraid to live and enjoy life and to experience life and experience uh, friends and travel and, and, and whatnot. Um, I mean, it, it, I, I, it's very important to, to take care of the, the basics. But once the basics are taken care of, you're you're working to have a good life and to have a good experience and and don't forget to, to just enjoy the 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 journey. 
All right. Awesome. Well, guys, this has been a real treat. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for staying up late with us. And and thanks for taking your time. It's a little bit of a longer episode, but I think it's a treat. And and Jace, it's been one that we haven't done before, right? With a father and a son. So first time. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you to both. Um, Stu, net worth of about 1.3. Had about $100,000, under $100,000 at 42 to a million at 53, right? Yeah. And Jimmy, you're at about close to 300 around, give or take. So, guys, thanks for coming on. That was really fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire. 